Looks like most of you are sitting down. I will call those in the back to come on and grab a seat. And I want to invite up Coloma Smith, who will be sharing with us today. And um, as, Col as Coloma was mentioning to me, that he's been a pastor at Amy Zion for almost 10 years. And so we're just blessed to have Coloma with us today. And I would love to pray for you, Coloma, as you're ready to come and be with us. So, Father, thank you so much for... Coloma and this chance to hear your word from him. And I pray your blessing upon him now. Just give him joy and peace as he speaks and give him your words, Lord, and give us ears to hear what you're saying to us through him. Thank you for who he is. Pray your blessing upon not just him, but his family as well. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Vineyard. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you are glad that God woke you up this morning, you can just start with a little bit of clapping your hands because God... <laughs> because God has been good to you. If he has made a way for you this week, you can say hallelujah or amen. I just want to check if God is real and alive in this room. Have you experienced God in your life this week? If you have, I just want you to say amen. Oh, come on, come on. You can do better than that. This is the redeemer of the soul, the lover of your heart, the God that came down from eternity just to be with you here on earth. Can I just hear amen one last time? Amen, amen, amen. I am grateful to be here at the Vineyard. Um, I want to honor the first family, the first family, your pastor, Pastor, uh, pastor Susan, Pastor Alex, the, all the children. They have been a blessing to me over the last 10 years. They have encouraged my soul. They were one of the first people that actually were nice to me. So I'm grateful for them. You know how Alex is. He walked in, he gave me a hug, he patted me on the back, and we have been friends ever, ever, ever since. We are praying for the woman of this house as they are way on retreat. You know, um, I was confused when I walked in. I was confused. I was like, they got the men and the kids together. You know, they need a lot of prayer in the house today. <laughs> We pray that the men don't grow any more gray hair and all the children are returned alive to their mothers. Amen. Amen. I'm excited to be here, Vineyard. Grateful to see you. We are continuing a sermon series that myself, Pastor Susan, um, oh, and, and you have two amazing associates, Ron and Mike. I've, I've had a great time getting to know them over the past few years, and I believe these two men of God are really, really amazing men. Put your hands together for your two associate pastors. Amen. Um, I want to thank my wife and my son who are here. They are my ultimate cheering corner. If nobody else is going to say amen, Henry will. Amen. <laughs> So, you know, um, myself, Pastor Susan, Pastor Brian, Pastor Paul, and a, and, and a couple of others got together to work on this sermon series um, through this Lenten season. And it's absolutely been amazing to see how God has moved through this concept of a suffering servant, but a conquering king. It is a paradoxical thing that doesn't make sense to the modern mind because you either suffer or you conquer. We live in a very black and white world. You just have to watch Congress. 
you know, you either suffer or you conquer. It's, it's always mortal combat. But Jesus, being the paradox that he is coming from heaven, has lifted some things out for us that we can see that the suffering servant can also be the conquering king. The time I have today, I want to spend some time talking to you from a story that is pretty well known. Um, we deal with it a lot as we get into Holy Week. That's the week between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, where we talk about Jesus's time on trial. You know, it's more known as the time that, that um, Peter denies him three times. But I want to spend time on a different segment of it today, and I want to really talk about standing in the face of adversity. If you have your Bibles, I want to open to Mark 14, 53 to 65, 53 to 65. And I want to read right here, it says, Jesus before the council. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. And made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let us pray. Father God, as we come to you today, I ask that you will hide Coloma behind the cross. Hide me behind your cross. Decrease me that your people can hear from you. God, I ask that whatever needs to be said is said. Whatever need to encourage is encouraged. God, speak to the hearts of the believer and the unbeliever. Speak to those that need encouragement. In your holy name, amen. You know, uh, I know many of us are still dealing with a COVID hangover, but I'm here to tell you, I believe we live in times of significant adversity. We have moved beyond COVID, but I believe right now we live in a season and a time in this world where adversity seems to be leading the news, leading our lives and leading the situation. Many of us, if we are honest, it was easier when we were just working from home, nobody in the office, nobody to talk 
talk to me. Nobody was going to the stock market. I just sort of sat in my house and took a walk around the block. That was easy to do. But now that we have restarted the world and now we have to live in the world and go back again, we are now watching banks collapse. We now have wars happening in the Ukraine and threatening of war happening with China. We see that unemployment and other things are going in a different direction. We feel an unusual pressure that in my 46 years, I have never seen a time where there is so much adversity happening on a personal level, but also on a global level. You know, adversity is, seems like a simple word. It seems like a simple thing, but adversity can actually be broken up into six separate elements. Many of us sometimes, if you're honest, as you get older, your bones start creaking and your knees start hurting and you don't walk up the steps as quick as you used to. You have what we call a physical adversity. I thought I was in good shape. I thought I was healthy. I thought I could do some stuff. Then I have a three and a half year old and for some reason, for some reason, he always has more energy than me. So I got to chase him around, and by the end of the day, I have a physical adversity. <laughs> there are many of us that deal with mental adversity. These are mental issues. If you actually read the newspapers, read the journals, read around the world, mental illness and mental challenges are now more significant than they've ever been. We see loneliness, we see depression, we see anxiety, and we see it even striking children and young adults in a greater part. But we also see it as adults are heading into retirement and they're getting older, they're trying to figure out their value and their place and their legacy in the world. And that leads to depression and anxiety and stress in an older generation. So many people are dealing with mental adversity in their life. Some of us are dealing with emotional adversity. We have those in our family, those that work, those that we know that are working our last nerves and they make us angry and frustrated and tired and it's an emotional adversity. You have a, an emotional response. You know what's the interesting thing I learned is that it's interesting that most of us have our deepest emotional adversity in our families. You know, I don't know about you, but I'll talk about myself. I'll talk about myself. I know, you know, some of us live the American dream, 2.5 kids, white picket fence, everybody and everything is good. But I have two siblings. I love them to death. They're my greatest siblings. They, uh, they, I love them. I love my brother. I love my sister. I think they're great people. But Lord knows they can get on my last nerve. It is as if they have a cheat code to work the nerve. It, it, it is as if they built me just specifically to get on my last nerve. It is as if they want to hear a preacher cuss. They know the button. Press the button. Just press the button and they get in it. But some of us, it's not that funny. We have people in our family that we have had emotional issues and anger and frustration. How many people in here haven't talked to so-and-so and this and that and the 
the other one for 5, 10, 15 years. You don't even remember what you argued about. You don't even talk about the incident, but you are emotionally adverse to somebody in your family because you don't even talk to them with your saved and sanctified self. You helped with the tech team. You helped with the music department. You helped set up. You helped do it all, but you're not talking to your cousin. You got emotional adversity. Some of us are dealing with social adversity. Uh, Alex, I heard we are located in the Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valley. You know, where the roads are, are paved with circuits and everyone drives a Tesla. And everybody has 17 activities and everybody does this and that. But what I've come to realize, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, people in Silicon Valley, they don't wear Gucci and Hermes and all those fancy brands. They don't do all of that stuff. But we're the wrong Patagonia. Have, don't live in the house, don't have the standards of the community. It puts families and people under pressure to be normative in this area. It's not easy to, to go to college, get a good job, and your first house is a million dollars. It's not easy to put your child in activities that cost 150 or $200 per activity. You got three kids, and now you got to put them in six activities. You are talking $1,000 every week in just after-school activities. It's not easy when you're talking about everybody has break and they call it ski break. You've never been skiing. You don't want to go skiing. You ain't got $200 for the tickets on the mountain, but everybody's going on ski breaks. So and now you got to pack the family, drive them up to Tahoe, go through 200 inches of snow, get to the top of the mountain. And now you're spending $1,000 to freeze <laughs> for ski break. I don't know, but we have some social <laughs> adversity. And the reality is we have financial adversity. I, I went to the store the other day. Um, you know, we have great grocery stores in Palo Alto. Um, they, I believe that they price in a fairy tale zone, but we have great grocery stores. So I went into Molly Stone. I picked up three things, and a lady told me $79. Y'all are nodding because you've been there. <laughs> Financial adversity is real. I, I know we live in an area where the median family income is around $250,000, but when the gas prices started going up and it was $6 and $7 and $8, and those of us that weren't smart enough to buy a Tesla, but we bought an SUV, you would go to the pump and you, you'd, you, 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 you'd put the gas in and then you'd stick it in and it would stop at 100 then you go in round two. <laughs> and if you had a really big car, sometimes it was round three. And people, I was like, these people make a lot of money. But everybody is complaining about gas because we've all felt financial adversity. I was sitting in Jamaica um, two weeks ago, and I was watching the news, and I watched the Silicon Valley Bank um, collapse. And I started texting people. And people that I thought had it all together, had all, they were in deep fright. All these founders and all these companies that we thought were stable and would always be there and all good. Everybody was scared. 
We can't deny that um, people that work at tech firms that thought their jobs were, were solid and safe, now we're talking about layoffs that look more like Detroit than Palo Alto. Financial adversity is real. We live in a time and we live in a place where adversity is the day. But as I look at my Lord Jesus Christ and I look at this moment, I think he will help us through these moments of adversity. Because he's dealing with adversity right here. And now I just want to pop your bubble and, and explain that although Jesus is all God and all man once in, in one being, he has that hypostatic state where he is all divine and all human. The reality is that his sacrifice that is made in these moments is his humanity. I need to be clear that this is the same flesh and blood that we are. He's dealing with the same feelings and anxieties and adversities that we deal with in our heart. And he's standing right here. Right before this, last week, we, um, last week we talked about it. He was up at Gethsemane and his boys could not even stay awake for him to pray. He goes to God and says, take the cup, but if not, I'll hold it. And they come and get him as a gang, and Peter cuts the man's ear off. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and heals the man there. And he comes to this moment, and he understood three things. The calling that is on your life, as long as you breathe, as long as you live, there will be moments of adversity. Many people will complain that they're dealing with adversity. But the way that God has built you in this broken world, you will face adversity. You're saying, Pastor, that's not really that profound. It's not that profound. But it's important for you to remember because when you are facing adverse situations, the first thing to understand is that I'm on assignment as a believer in Christ in this adverse environment. God knew from the very creation, the very beginning of time, that I would be dealing with this mess in this situation, with these people watching, with these factors happening. And my biggest testimony is that I understand that I can't respond to adversity in the same way the rest of them do. I need to say this to you. I need you to be clear. We, the countercultural, the Christian, the believer, understands that we are going to face adversity, but we can't act like the unbeliever. We can't gnash teeth and cry and complain and tweet and, and, and backstab and fight and push. We, as believers, are put on assignment to be Christ-like in dark places. Jesus walks into a kangaroo court that he's absolutely certain and knows what they're going to do. And he just stands there because he's on assignment. His assignment got there. 
is to understand adversity. I know, I know some modern theology teaches you that, you know, give, give, give 10% to the church, do this, do that, your life will be perfect. I'm not here to delude or fool you. God didn't, pro didn't promise you perfection, but he did promise you peace. Missed it. That was where you should have said amen. <laughs> that was a good part right there. Because even in your assignment, in that dark place, in that place that bothers you, you have something that is a blessed assurance that non-believers don't have. You know what happens when it goes crazy and it goes wild? I don't have to call my cousin. I don't have to call my friend. I don't have to call my therapist. I get on my knees and I'll get up off my knees after I prayed and I have a blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I don't know about you, but when I stand in adversity, it's different. Check this one out. He didn't respond to outside agitation. He didn't respond. If you really take a look at this, you break down the text, uh, Pastor Ron. Ron he, he, Jesus is attacked by institution. He's attacked by leaders. His ministry is attacked, and his, and his integrity is attacked. Jesus' very being is being attacked. And what is his response? Nothing. Doesn't scream. He doesn't shout. He doesn't scheme. He just stands there. Read the text. They're making up stories. So, so let me break down each of them so you get it. At the beginning of the, of the text, you will see it says um, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees grabbed him. Those are the institution of religious faith that grabbed him. They took him to, they say, the chief priest's house, Caiaphas's house. So that's the leadership that gets him. They get there and they get people to personally attack him about his ministry. And he never responds. I need to tell some believers today that you are responding to the wrong things. You, with the spicy email you just sent him, Y'all know the email. Per my last email, with the previous discussion, please click this link to the diagram I gave you before. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> We've all done it. Spicy emails, curt responses. Some fights are not for you to fight. Where's the God that defends me if I fight every fight? Where's the moment that I say, God, I give this to you so you can fight the fight for me? Some of us are too busy running in front of God fighting fights that we don't need to fight. Some of us need to get behind God and not in front of him. 
Some of us need to trust him to fight the fight. Believers no longer have discernment. They're too busy fighting the fight. Some fights, we, we, we ought to pray and say, God, is this my fight or your fight? And when it's God's fight, let him fight it. When it's your fight, let him fight it. Thank you. <laughs> let him fight it. Because the result he's going to give you is so much better. I remember sitting as a young preacher at the, at the feet of, of, of the esteemed former pastor of the Riverside Baptist Church, Riverside Baptist Church in New York, James Forbes. I'm blown away that I had the opportunity as a young minister to sit at this breakfast to hear this giant of the faith speak. And he says, I'm going to give you one advice. And he says, you can't fight the church. I said, what do you mean, Dr. Forbes? What do you mean? He says, I came, and I, I know, you know, this is, this is not Vineyard or University, but some churches, members can be cantankerous. <laughs> not this church. No, I'm, I'm not talking about my church or your church. Some churches. <laughs> so he goes to the meeting. And they're calling him everything but a child of God. And it says, I went to the upper room and prayed before I, before I went to the meeting. I sat in the meeting and I squeezed the arm of my chair so tight that you could see my nails in the imprint of the wood. But I didn't say anything as they attacked me. I said, Dr. Forbes, how did the situation work out? He was like, those that didn't agree left, but then God gave us the opportunity to blossom after that. Like, you didn't say anything? No, nope. you didn't have a plan. You didn't have a vision. didn't have a Gantt chart. You didn't have it all worked out. You didn't figure it all out. He said, no. I just sit there and let God fight the fight. And this is the best part. The final point is he focused on his mission. If we go back and we look at verse 62, he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, in his moment of adversity, saw beyond Pilate, saw Beyond the Via Dolorosa, saw beyond Golgotha's Hill, saw beyond being put in the tomb, saw beyond the resurrection, saw beyond the Pentecost moment. He saw till the very end of time what God was going to do because he understood his mission and his place. I encourage every believer that you ought to be praying to God to say, God, what do you have me to do in this world? And what does the end look like? Because when I start focusing on what God wants me to do in the end, when I start focusing on where he's taking me, when I start focusing on God's plan for my life, all I know 
know is that I can face any issue, any problem, or any adversity. I just need believers to stop listening to CNN, watching the tweets, watching TV, listening to the neighbors, and start looking for what God would have for you in your future. Because in this moment of adversity, the word of God and his destiny in your life is what will lead you to a new place. Amen.